You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he may not be a smart man, but he knows what love is. Jenny. It's Jeff McLaughlin. That's right. I have eight, six, seven, five, three, oh, nine reasons <laughs> to be less smart. Ooh, look at that. Mixing references. Uh, so, hey, what's up? What's going on? Tell me a story. Uh, not much. I don't know. It's nice. <laughs> nice out. Been nice out for a while. I put all my, call it my Irish furniture, back out on my deck. So why is it Irish? Is it? It's patio furniture. Oh, I thought I thought you were just gonna tell me it's white and violent. No, no, it's <laughs> it's, it's patio furniture. It's not, patio furniture. Huh? I like my joke. I like my joke better. <laughs> yeah, so so I've got that all out, and I've. I've started writing down all the things I have to go get to plant 800 million thousand flowers, which I do every year. Uh, speaking of white and violent furniture, and, and it was actually, it was a patio chair. You know those white plastic chairs like you get for like the patio stuff there, right? Yes. So when I first got a computer, you know, I didn't really have a desk. I had like a bureau and I would keep the computer on top of that and the keyboard. I kept it for storage in like one of the drawers and I didn't have a desk chair. I was using like a patio chair, right? Right. My bedroom was adjacent to the living room and there's like the closets and uh, and a bookshelf that kind of like intertwined the two rooms, right? Yeah. So anytime I went looking through the closet, where my mom was sitting watching TV, she could hear me rumbling around, right? And she would always be like, what are you looking for? It's like, I'm just looking for something. It doesn't matter what I'm looking for. I'm just, just calm down, right? <laughs> now I'm, I'm sitting in this, this chair, this patio chair, and I'm leaning back on it exactly like you shouldn't be doing on something that can barely support your own weight on four legs, right? The, the thing breaks. I flip over, ass over teacups, and the broken leg jams like sticks into my leg just like stabs me i'm bleeding right i i like boom 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 thud i scream like i've just been murdered do you think my mother comes in to see what's wrong no but rustle two papers in a closet and she freaks the hell out Well, I think she figured after the two paper thing, no matter what you were doing, it was probably fine. She probably she must have been like, "I oh, must have found it." <laughs> I guess you were looking for something that makes a lot of noise. <laughs> another another great classic moment was, I'm, <laughs> we used to have a dog, right? We used to have this dog, yeah. uh, Samson. You know, how you you get like a run for the dogs. You know, you tie up a, a cable in between two trees, and the dog can go running yes. back. And my brother used to, you know, my brother and I were both uh, smoked as teenagers and stuff like that. So Norman used to go outside to smoke. I guess I'm I'm playing video games, and my mom comes in the room. Like there's a mystery, like like a like yeah. a Scooby Doo mystery. She's like, there's all sorts of cigarette butts at the end of Samson's run. 
And I'm like, oh my god, you think the dog has started smoking? That's exactly now? what I said to her. I, I paused the game. I go, you don't think Samson started smoking, did you? She's all pissed off. She's like, I can't talk to you. She closes the door on me. <laughs> well, that'll keep Ronnie yep. here for a while. So I'm just yeah. picturing Samson, who's like a black lab, right? Just like standing up on its back legs, leaning up against the the clothesline, smoking a butt. You come over. You come over to the screen. He's like, "What the hell do you want?" Flicks the butt at you. Right. Sparks. Hey, you might have been onto something, you know. If you put a bunch of empty beer cans next to the cat box, <laughs> it wasn't me. I don't know, look at that! Wow, it's I guess Fluffy's taking up drinking. No wonder he sleeps all day. Oh, mittens hitting the sauce again. <laughs> Catnip's a gateway drug. We know that, right? <laughs> all right. Before we get into the show proper, uh, I have my. Always very popular and often well-received uh, trivia question for you. Oh, boy. Today's trivia question. Who was the youngest regular cast member on Saturday Night Live? The youngest regular cast member on Saturday Night Live. I don't have to think about this. Okay. So, you think, and we'll we'll get rocking and or rolling. That's foreshadowing, kids. So, this is the week beginning, May the 10th, and why don't you start? I will. May the 10th. 1986. Bill, do you remember the song Rock Me Amadeus by German dance slash techno-y slash pop star named Falco? Remember it? Are you kidding? That's going to be my wedding song. <laughs> well, this is the week, the day actually, that it went to number one in the UK. And it would later, I don't think it got to the number one in the US, but it got darn close. Yeah, that song was everywhere. It was. Uh, it's one of the rare German imports that didn't get an English version translation that charted instead. Oh, right. Because, yeah, Falco's, like, first, I don't want to say his first hit, I'm not sure, but one of his bigger German hits, Der Kommissar. Right. You know, it's, it's all in German, and right. most Americans don't speak German. There was an American band, or maybe they were English, uh, they were called After the Fire, and they did a an, uh, an English translation of it that was very popular and that's a great song too mtv actually started airing falco's der commissar in germany yeah. yeah i think his video was was out before that that secondary single and it had crossed over into into europe before the english language translation one i hope it wasn't a direct translation i can barely remember that After the Fire was a band that did that song. But I remember Falco's version. Oh, really? Yeah. Rock Me Amadeus, that was like everywhere. And it, that's one of those songs that's like, one, it's fun. It's a fun song with the oh, oh, yeah. oh, 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 oh. Right. But it's also weird enough. And the video was weird too, you know? Right. And uh, that was right around the time of the, the movie Amadeus too, wasn't it? It was yeah. indeed. And I was surprised it didn't get used in it. Which would have been beautiful piece of ridiculousness um, for a, a prestige film about biopic of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart with that as the end credits music. My favorite memory of this goofy song, using it to torment my son, Ian, who did like six years of German in middle school and, and high school. I used to keep it kind of queued up on my phone. And when we were talking about schoolwork, I'm like, how are you doing in German? He's like, oh, I'm all right. You know, I'm like, I need you to translate something. <laughs> And then that song would start and be like, God damn it, Dad. And I'm like, come on! You know? He had another song called Vienna Calling. Do you remember that one? That yeah. song was awesome, yep, too. Do. Unfortunately, Falco, uh, he died uh, tragically. He was yep. two weeks before his 41st birthday. He crashed with a bus 
a his Mitsubishi Pijaro. Yeah, I don't know what car that is. That's some European version of a Mitsubishi something yeah, or other. Yeah, no, it's an, it's an SUV. But yeah, he crashed in with the bus, and uh, that was the end of Falco, which is right. which is too bad. Yeah. All right, so moving on to the next day, May the 11th. May the 11th. Yep, when I think, you know, the, the middle of May, summer's on the way, you know, we'll second, start cleaning out the grill, yep. you know, for uh, the upcoming Memorial Day holiday and all that. What I think of the most, though, in May 11th in the year 1659, uh, that'd be a great time to ban Christmas. Well, look, if you're going to ban Christmas, you want to do that early. Yeah, yeah you want before the shopping season really yeah, starts. Yeah, you want to get ahead of that train, right? You want to definitely, definitely do. Yeah, so May 11th, uh, 1659, celebration of the Christmas holiday is made illegal in Massachusetts. Uh, makes yep. sense. Uh, the Puritans associated such celebrations with paganism and idolatry, which is a fun word for me to say. Yep. That's uh, definitely true, and I'm sure that they would confiscate all the little wooden statues of Santa Claus that the little pilgrim children had carefully carved out of whatever scrap wood they could find. Yep, you say, yep, you say ho, 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 and you're you're hit with a fine, fine, fine. Uh, yep, Christmas was banned in the uber-liberal state of Massachusetts. I, you know, let's not forget that if it wasn't for Massachusetts, we'd have no Rhode Island, because that's kind of the Shelbyville to uh, <laughs> Massachusetts' uh, Springfield. Yeah, and, and Quahog. Don't forget the Quahog word. And, and uh, now, this ban on Christmas, this war against Christmas, lasted from 1659 until 1681. Oddly enough, on the same day, May 11th, 1682, just a year after Christmas was, uh, was allowed back into the uh, state of Massachusetts, in 1682, Massachusetts repeals a law that they had requiring capital punishment, uh, which is death, uh, <laughs> for Quakers returning to the territory after they had been banished. Yeah, Quake, yeah, Quakers had been kicked out of Massachusetts, and if they came back in, which they'd string them up, I guess. Yeah, well, that, keep in mind that the Quakers of 1658 are different than the Quakers on the Quaker Oats box. Yes. Um, they were a lot more like stand outside church and threaten to burn it down and yell and scream about how terrible the people inside of it were. And they were super obnoxious both in England here and, and in the United States. Well, what would become the United States later, but the colonies. Uh, it caused all kinds of stress and strife. So you take the Westboro Baptist Church and put a couple of like belt buckles on their hats and you get the Quakers? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's pretty much what you get. And and when it's 1658 and, you know, every single day is consumed with, do I chop wood today or do I try and find berries to eat because we're all going to starve if I don't find some food? Right. And there's people outside yelling at me about blasphemy. <laughs> I think I know what we're going to eat. Yeah. So. <laughs> we're having oatmeal. You know what I mean? <laughs> Quaker oats. <laughs> so. That was the war on Christmas. Take that, Mr. Bill O'Reilly. So, oh yeah, Bill O'Reilly was a big fan of Ho Ho Ho's too, from what I understand. <laughs> I may or may not edit that out. All right. Uh, <laughs> All right, so moving on to the 12th, we have... May 12th, 1963. Bob Dylan was about to release his second album, Freewheeling Bob Dylan. He had scored an appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. He was going to do the song called Talkin' John Birch Paranoid Blues, which, if you've never heard it, is a really fun sort of old-school spoken folk song. Uh -huh. If somebody said, 1960s, Bob Dylan, and you hear, jing, jigga, jigga, jing, jigga, and then him saying things, and then a harmonica, that's what that song is. Right. He had shown it, he played it for them, and everybody thought it was fine. 
And then the day of the show, they asked him to play something else, and he said, nope. (laughs) (laughs) And he split. He took off, and that was it. There's been a lot of hay made out of that. Like, it suggests that he was like, screw you guys, I'm out of here. From what I've been able to to learn about this is he basically said, I'm not going to pick another song, sorry. And he, he left on principle, but he left, you know, on good terms with Ed Sullivan, and Ed Sullivan always felt bad, I guess, about it. But think about the the balls it takes to walk away from the, effectively the biggest stage in the United States. Right, yeah. Right before your second album comes out and is going to give you nationwide exposure. There's your artistic integrity, right? And then right. here's what I think happened. is like, uh, you know, Ed Sullivan was like, ah, we need to do another song. And then uh, Bob Dylan was like, <laughs> and Ed was just like, oh, I guess he's cool with that. So, all right. So, so years ago, in what I think was probably either marketing genius or a prank that just went way too far, Tom Petty did a tour with Bob Dylan. Right. And they both sing like that. You know, they both have that yeah. uh, uh, kind of thing to them, right? My friend uh, Denise told me the story. She worked at, do you remember Good Vibrations Record Store? I do. Right? So she worked there and her manager had grabbed some of like the displays that they had and he made like just like this cardboard cutout mask of Bob Dylan and <laughs> and cut eye holes in it, right? Before the show started, he went up and down the front row of the venue, which was Great Woods, with this Bob Dylan mask, shaking people's uh, hands and going. All right, so moving on to May the thirteenth, nineteen ninety-two. I I love uh, a good. Human interest story like this one. <laughs> so uh, this young man named Fred Turner, he decided to prove the goodness of people. So he started to walk across the United States of America to prove that people are basically good. And how'd that work out for him? Uh, while he was on this trot, <laughs> your friend and mine, Fred Turner, was robbed and then pushed off of a bridge. <laughs> Did he survive this? Yes, he said he was going to. Oh, that's good. Yeah, he said he was going to try it again someday. Uh, now this was uh, 1992, so this is approximately 29 years ago. I and as far as I don't think he's done it yet. Yeah, I don't think he's had at it. Yeah, uh, probably watch that side. He looks around and he goes, "Screw all of you." Yeah, and he goes back in. Well, you know what? There's the, maybe he could do it now because there's a lot of technology you can use now. Right. Like you know how on Google Maps you can like avoid tolls. And you can, uh, you know, avoid highways. And maybe you can put in a, a, another filter, avoid shit neighborhoods. <laughs> that would have the, op- the the secondary secondary message, like people uh, with high property values are generally very good. <laughs> avoid bridges. Poor Fred Turner. This is one of those, you can't have nice things. You remember a couple of years ago, there was, there was like a robot, the hitchhiking robot. Yep, and, I remember. Yeah, and, and it went like it went across Europe. I think it went across Canada as well. The thing was, you would put it would you put it at the side of the road, and if you saw it, you would pick it up and you would drive it in whatever direction, and then you would leave it on the side of the road. The next person would come and pick it up. Would pick it right, and it had stickers all over yeah. it, and and uh, it went across Europe and it went across Canada, I believe, and then it's they were going to do it in America, and they started it over in over here in Massachusetts, and it made it as far as somewhere in Pennsylvania. I think it was Philadelphia, and then it was somebody just like picked it up and just destroyed it. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like us. Well, it goes to show you that hitchhiking, whether you're a robot or a human, is 
not the safest way to travel unless, yep. you know, like guys who go cross country, see what it's like, like John Waters did. He wrote a whole book about it. Right, right, yeah. And he, he just left his house one day and he's like, I'm hitchhiking to California. <laughs> All right. And there he went. Have creepy mustache, we'll travel, yeah. yeah. And that wasn't that long ago either, right? He did that. Nah, I was like three or four years. Yeah. Go, John. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of hard to not be the creepiest person in the car when you're John Waters. I mean, if, if I, like, pulled over and John Waters got in the car, like, are you John Waters? And he said, yes. Like, where are you going? Well, I'm trying to get to California. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but we're in New Hampshire, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, doesn't matter. You know, I'm just going to stop for gas. All right, so moving on to the 14th, what do we got? On the 14th in 2018, Ooh. scientists from the University of California have successfully transferred the memories of one group of snails into another group of snails. And it sounds like kooky, crazy science fiction, or it sounds like months ago where we talked about the telepathic snail box. You know, I was just, as you're saying this, I was just thinking, like, looking around my desk and seeing if there was a place where I could install a bullshit button so that whenever, like, a story comes up like this, it could just be like... Yeah, wait, hold on. I want to dissect this for a second. So they got this one group of snails, and then they, like, did the Warner Brothers cartoon kind of, like, put the helmets on them and transferred the memories from one to the other? Uh, Not exactly, but close. Okay. So here's how the experiment worked. They had one group of snails... And they used a little probe that had uh, an electrical electrode on the end, and they z- shocked the antennas of the snail so that it would withdraw into its shell. You don't need a probe All for that. Sh- we could do you could do that with your fingertip. That was well, like endless entertainment. That was endless entertainment for me when I was a kid. You pick up a snail and boop. Let Let me explain how they did it. Okay. So they realized that when they used an electrode and the snails withdrew into their shell, they stayed in there for a couple of minutes. Yeah, because it hurt. And they used a non-electrical probe to touch the snail's antenna. They pulled back into the shell, but they only stayed in for a couple of seconds. And then their antenna came back out, and they came back out. And this was consistent. So what they did was they took a particular RNA and protein from the snails that they had electrocuted, and they put them into this, this other group of snails, and then... When they touched that other group of snails with a non-electrified probe, they pulled back into their shell and stayed inside for like two minutes. So their their memory of them being shocked in one snail was transferred over to these other snails. I can just see like the professors at that university. Like, Professor, what well, watch this? They show them the, the experiment, and the professor's <laughs> like well, who be freaking do? <laughs> well, look, we've got a grant to study this. Yeah. We've got $350,000 left to spend. What do you want to do with it? <laughs> what are you going to do with the other $349,000? Right. You think this experiment is ridiculous. You know, in the office next door, they're trying to make two ladybugs publish a zine. <laughs> what are you going to do with the rest of the money? Oh, we could buy some more snails, I guess. <laughs> I want to work with an animal that has a backbone from that yeah. What is it with these these people and the snails and their, like, psychic abilities and stuff? Why snails? Uh, well, the thing with this is that the snails, the snails that they used in this experiment have a nervous system that's very conducive to doing neurological research. I guess the neurons are big, they're relatively easy to observe, and the animals are relatively hardy. So they can deal with being f***ed around with and having... <laughs> DNA shot from one into the other. The point is that whatever happened to the snail with the electrical shock was stored in the RNA. 
And when they put the RNA in the other snail, programming in that RNA gave that snail the same reaction, even though it had never experienced an electric shock before. Okay. I, I get it, but I still see it as functionally useless. But whatever. Snails. <laughs> also, I think they can get away with doing it to snails. Like This sounds terrible, though. Think about this. Like, There's so many people out there with like depression and anxiety. And just the thought of being able to inject non-existent bad memories into people, that's even worse. Exactly. Like, oh, hey, you know what? <laughs> oh, man. I got an F in algebra. But you're a mathematician. I know, somebody else's F, but it still feels bad. We could probably track this down. It's like, I have depression and anxiety. Have you ever had escargot? <laughs> it's a question worth asking. Right. All right. Speaking of slugs, uh, one of my favorite slugs was a guy named Jabba, who did not appear in this movie. But on May the 15th, 2005, episode three of the Star Wars Skywalker saga, Revenge of the Sith, opens in theaters. And there's a lot to be said about the prequels. And a lot of people don't have a lot of good things to say about the prequels. But let me tell you, Revenge of the Sith kicks a lot of ass. That's a good one. I like that one. Yeah, they're okay. That's, that's <laughs> my, my entire review of the, the entire Star Wars universe. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, the, Star, the Star Wars prequels. What do you think? All right. All right. Well, they're movies. Yeah. Of all the movies I've ever seen, there are three of yes. them. I really liked Revenge of the Sith because it was... Palpatine's story, you know, and I really, Palpatine was my favorite character in the Star Wars, uh, in the Star Wars universe, because he's basically the devil. Right. It was his story, and just that, the, 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 um, the, the switchover, when he went from being Senator Palpatine to the Emperor, to, uh, to Darth Sidious, whenever, um, Mace Windu comes in, and he says that you're under, you know, he says you're under arrest, and his voice goes from his normal to no, no. It just changed, you know, in, into uh, into Dot Sidious. Yeah, that was it was really good. And then the the fight between him and uh, and Yoda. There was so much about that movie I liked. Yeah, it's, I I remember seeing it in the cinema. A lot of computer generated things in that movie. Yeah, I for better or for worse. I mean, I really liked General Grievous. I thought General Grievous was a good character. I thought he was cool looking, and he was completely computer generated. Uh, what I did not like, like the one thing that like drove me nuts in that movie, like every time I watch, it, I still, I, I still like, oh come on, is Grievous goes rolling off on his little like gyroscope cycle, right? Mm-hmm. And Obi Wan goes chasing after him on that like karma chameleon, yeah. and the thing just keeps going, ah, ah, wicked noisy. It's like, oh. I know you want to flex your CGI muscles, but couldn't you put them on something else that doesn't squawk? I don't know if it was that film or the one before it where my ability to sit still while green screen actors punched computer-generated things pretty much broke, and I stopped liking them <laughs> altogether. So yeah, if, it, right, if I'm going to watch a movie now and that's part of the movie, I'm, I don't I don't keep watching well, it. Well, that's the thing, too. It's like in episode two, you know, whenever you get down to like the acting part, 
you know, with the love story between um, Anakin and Padme. Yeah, Hayden Christensen and Natalie Yeah, you're almost begging for CGI freaking lizards at that point. They didn't have a lot of chemistry, and that's a lot of that had to do with George Lucas's inability to write dialogue that was good for them or let anybody good punch it up. But, I mean, just in general, and it's not just the Star Wars films, um, it's, it's any film that sort of giant spectacle my brother said something about um i think he was pissing on uh, episode one because i liked it whenever i first saw it my brother goes oh, if fast moving objects and flashy lights is all it needs to capture your attention you would get along great with my cat <laughs> episode uh one i think is the only one i saw more than one time in the cinema because it came around again when Ian was little, yeah. and I took him to see it a couple of times. And they brought it back in 3D, and they were going to do it with all of all all six of them, but it tanked so bad that they were like, "Nope, not doing it anymore. That's it." Yeah, I actually liked it better the second time I saw it. The first one, at yeah. least, I didn't care about the other two, but that one was all right. That's even though Jake Lloyd is probably shouldn't have been He's cast. 11. Yes, they could have found their children who can act. <laughs> They can be found. Yep. I uh, at, at the beginning of the lockdowns, you know, I needed stuff to do. And I have the movie theater in my cellar. And I went back and I watched like three nights in a row. I watched all three of the, the prequels. And they were fine. They're fine. I know a lot of people like to piss on on Star Wars because it's insanely popular. You punch up, you don't punch down. So, but no, they were fun. They were fine. No, it's again, they're, you know, they're fun. I just don't feel the need to ever seek them out yeah well there's, there's other stuff to see i i, I know what you all right and let's wrap up the week may 16th 1965 the campbell soup company introduces spaghettios under its franco-american brand be- immediately becoming the favored thing that my dad wanted to eat as a grown adult provided he got more than 15 meatballs in a can <laughs> and that sounds like a lot yeah but you never had to stand there at two o'clock in the morning with my dad while he counted meatballs what happened if he got like 13 meatballs he would just throw the whole thing away no he would complain about it for the next month oh all right. oh my god i bought the worst can of <laughs> spaghettios ever jeez 13 meatballs there should be at least 20 meatballs in that can. That was a full-size can jeff it wasn't a half a can or anything <laughs> I better get 24 meatballs in the next can that I have because Jesus Christ. I'll tell you a funny story. My dad owned a restaurant, as you know, and sometimes would stay at that restaurant for a long time and consume alcohol. And I was home in my basement, which is where our kitchen was, and I was working on a short story. So it was late at night and I was typing away on my word processor, typewriter or something. And he came downstairs and he says, oh, Dad, Jeffrey, you want some food? And I said, sure. And he had been to store 24. The only place it was open at 2 o'clock in the morning. And he, he took uh, this big copper pan that we had, and he put in one can of SpaghettiOs, one can of cream-style corn, half a can of Frito-Lay nacho cheese dip, and he opened a bag of Doritos and started to heat this stuff up on the stove, which, incidentally, smells terrible. This sounds like the puke concoction from Porky's 2, is what it sounds like. <laughs> So he's heating it up and he's eating it with nacho cheese Doritos as it's boiling on the stove. And he turns around and he says to me, do you want some? And I was like, no, dad. And he picks up the pan with no like pan holder and it's friggin' red hot. And he goes, ah, and he throws it and he throws it all over my mother's sewing machine. (laughs) (laughs) Two o'clock in the morning. 
So my mother's sewing machine, the thing she uses to earn the money that we get so that we can eat food, is covered in Franco-American SpaghettiOs with 20 meatballs. <laughs> cream style corn and nacho cheese dip and he looked at me and goes you have to help me clean this up <laughs> and i said i know i don't <laughs> good night dad <laughs> and i went to bed <laughs> now you said this is franco-american right yeah okay this brings up a, a huge controversy are you a franco-american canned pasta or are you a chef boyardee canned pasta i am more of a franco-american canned pasta Even if i'm gonna that- eat canned pasta that's right. So I say death to Chef Boy. Oh, death. no, no, no. I'm, I was, when I was a kid, dude, I was all about Chef Boy ID raviolis. I haven't had them in years because the wall, well, no, it's not that they're terrible, but the, as I get older, the walls of my stomach have become like paper thin. And <laughs> one can of raviolis is definitely not enough food for me. I would require at least two cans of raviolis. But. Anything over one can of raviolis, and I will have peptic ulcer for like the next three or four months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you'd be nothing but but Zantac. Yeah, after yeah, that. exactly. Yeah, just I'm just like eating calcium, eating chalk is what I'm eating. And the other thing too is I don't eat a lot of like sodium. And when you right. don't eat a lot of sodium, and then suddenly you you you're like, oh, I'm gonna have some uh, ramen noodles, or I'm gonna have you know Chef Boy ID. Right. It affects you horribly. <laughs> It definitely does. I learned that lesson this week. Yeah. That's how you take your pulse and it's like 102. You're just sitting on the couch. Oh, well, that and when you finally get to the end of that cycle and your body has absorbed whatever sodium it's going to yeah. use and everything else is like, oh, the plumbing's back online. Okay, cool. <laughs> 257 trips to the bathroom and 24 hours later. My father, when we were little, my father worked for a union shop. He worked for Morse Cutting Tools. And there was one summer where he was on strike, so he was out of work for the whole summer. And my mom had gone back to work, right? So here's my father, who I I think I brought this up before. My father was not a handy person who could barely stir his own coffee. So you know, I asked him to make me lunch, and he was like, "What do you want?" I was like, "Raviolis," right? So he, he's like, he t- I swear to God, he takes a saucepan, doesn't even open the can of raviolis. <laughs> Just just puts it in there. doesn't even put water. He's not even double boiling it. He just like puts yeah, the yeah. can in the saucepan. I'm like looking. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm making a shut up. I'm making ravioli. And I was like, I go, no. just That's not how mom does it. Yeah, I go, I go, just open it. And you put it in the microwave for five minutes. It's done. <laughs> uh, but let's get on to the celebrity birthdays. All right. Waka waka. May the 10th. 1960, a man you and I would both know as Bono Vox, lead singer from U2. Yep. Oh, nice. A lot can be said about Bono, you know, for better or for worse. Um, So U2 started out as kind of like a post-punk band. And, you know, then they kind of got a little protesty. And then by the time the 90s came around, they kind of like, they kept reinventing themselves for better or for worse. Bono's always been a very interesting person one of my favorite stories with bono was he got an audience with the pope with pope john paul ii and he brought him gifts he brought him a book of irish poetry and then he brought him a pair of bono's uh you know trademark sunglasses there are no pictures of this because the vatican made everybody shut their cameras off but pope john paul ii put on the sunglasses that must have been so freaking cool to see there's a bunch of funny stories kind of about him and i'm somebody who like i've never liked you two as a band but as i've 
become older yep. as a music listener. There's a couple of tracks on almost every record yeah. that I like, you know? Like, they get a lot of shit for being, like, mom rock, but right. so what's wrong with that? Bono doesn't get a lot of respect early in the career of U2, right? And he had written to a musician named Captain Beefheart who did, like, these sort of jazz-infused and super funky-style bluesy records that are a lot more closer to, like, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention than they are to U2. And he said, hey, can I write with you? Can we do a song together? And Captain Beefheart wrote back this exact message. Dear Bongo. (laughs) No. (laughs) It's just such a funny, funny line. All right, moving on. Uh, May 11th, 1811. Yes, two uh, Siamese children who later moved to the United States, uh, Chang and Eng Bunker, the two brothers who, by exhibiting themselves, who were joined at the waist by a like a tube of skin, uh, are considered the first or define the, the term Siamese twin right. to define conjoined twins. They lived for a wicked long time. Yeah, there was conjoined twins long before them. Because of them, the, the term Siamese twins got coined. And like you just said, their names were Chan and Eng, which is hilarious because in Thai, the, those words mean left and right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if I had conjoined twins, I think I would have worked a little harder at that than names. <laughs> what's, what's your name? Uh, this guy and that yeah. guy. This and that. You and the other oh, one. Oh, yeah. Uh, Kitten Caboodle, I think I would have named it. Kitten Caboodle. <laughs> Punch and Judy. Yeah. Or, or at least, you know, salt and pepper or something, yeah. I'm with stupid and the guy <laughs> with the stupid shirt. <laughs> uh, and let's go on to the 12th, 1937, May 12th, 1937, American funny man, George Carlin. Oh, nice. Yeah. The first comedian to really go from mainstream comedy to non-mainstream comedy, yeah. and then back to mainstream comedy, and defined all three of them. Yeah, he's yeah he started out as like a goofball kind of like a family-friendly comedy, and then he hung out with Lenny Bruce one night, and they ended up getting arrested together. And then like overnight, he became kind of like a social commentary kind of comedian. I have his first record here that he did as like the George Carlin that everyone knows as George Carlin, AM and FM. Right where it's a mix of some of his bits from, like, Las Vegas, and then the bits that would transition him into being a comedian who focused more on, like, popular culture and social issues. And it starts out with a bit where he says, I got fired from the Sands Hotel for using the word s*** in a town where the biggest game is called craps. (laughs) (laughs) That's how how that record starts. It's a fantastically funny record. Yeah, I remember you, like, uh, making me a tape of that. Uh, Yeah. We were in high school. You're know, like, oh, you got to hear his really early stuff. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's super funny. Yeah, later on in life, he came, you know, he basically became a cranky old man, but somehow he was still hilarious. Yeah. In the, yep. uh, in the, in the business of it, yep. All right, let's move on to the 13th. What do we got? May 13th, 1939. American actor Harvey Keitel. You may remember him from being in... Uh, Taxi Driver. Yep, that's where I know him from. Yep. As Sport the Pimp, he was in Pulp Fiction as Winston Wolfe. He was also like from that Scorsese, early, early Scorsese time where he was in Mean Streets. And um, 
later in this silly science fiction movie called Saturn 3. Great character actor and general weird guy. So that's him, Harvey Keitel. My favorite of his films, I think, is Mean Streets. And I remember watching him in Bad Lieutenant and having to watch it in two sessions because it was so intense I couldn't sit through the whole thing at once. (laughs) I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't deal with it. Going on to the 14th, May 14th, 1962, uh, guitar player for the band Poison, C.C. DeVille. Nice. C.C. DeVille, uh, it concerns me. <laughs> Do you remember they used to be on, I think it was on VH1, I don't think it was MTV, I think it was VH1, they used to do Rock and Roll Jeopardy? No. Alright, so it was just like, it was set up just like Jeopardy, yep. but the contestants were all rock stars. And all and all the questions were all music oriented. It's called Rock and Roll Jeopardy. And this one particular it definitely has a celebrity Jeopardy on Saturday Night Live vibe for me. This one particular episode, it was one of the girls from the band Vixen, CC Deville, and then Andy Summers from the Police. So CC Deville, I didn't know that guy drunk until I saw him sober once. You know, he's, the, he's that kind of a thing. <laughs> yep. And he's a freaking space shot, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm just, and I love the police, and Andy Summers is super smart and all that. And I, I just thought that, you know, it was going to be Andy Summers. Between Andy Summers and the other person, which, I, like I said, I think my memory says it was one of the girls from Vixen. They must have got about two questions each. CeCe DeVille swept. That guy knew every question, like, and hit the buzzer. Bam, bam, bam. He, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's I think he pistol. graduated from Juilliard with a with a master's degree in music. Like Oh, all he's, right. Yeah, he's yeah. no he's no slug. He was being interviewed at one point about his guitar playing and he's like, Look, dude, I went to Juilliard. I studied with Yitzhak Perlman. I'm I'm a I'm like I'm like not a slouch. <laughs> and the answer from the interviewer at that time should have been, Yeah, but you're in poison. <laughs> yeah. Because- you know? But like the dude really is talented and and smart and kind of funny. So yeah. He was like the reason that uh, that Poison broke up. They were they were st- on a MTV performance, and they were supposed to be doing like, you know, Unskinny Bop or whatever the hell. And then yeah. CC just like broke into another song because he felt like it. And then yeah, <laughs> and then they got to a big fight backstage afterwards, and that was yeah. that was the end of Poison. Yep. He must have been sick to death of doing those songs. All right, next up. May 15th, 1856. I think everybody I've talked about today is from the 1800s. I was going to say children's author, but he's technically not. L. Frank Baum. You may not recognize the name, but you will recognize the name of his works. He invented Chapstick, right? He did not. L. Frank Baum is the the writer of the Wizard of Oz series of books. And when I say series of books and your brain goes, there's a series of books? There is indeed a series of books. And they're very fantastic and weird and kind of scary and strange. The time that they were written became this weird sort of genre-defying set of, of, of stories. Nowhere near captured accurately in the 1939 film, but oh, captured no. way more accurately in the Disney Return to Oz film from like 1992. Oh, yeah. I, uh, you know, I hadn't seen that one, but I had heard like legends. They were like, oh, you've never seen Return to Oz? Nightmare fuel seems to be the word that gets thrown around a lot. Yeah. And it is. It's dark. It's scary. Even like one of the friendly characters, TikTok is just like terrifying. Yeah. And you know? I think I think he and did the, the illustrations in the books too. Like the illustrations are weird and everything. And the book's really, really strange. They're fun to read. The wheelers in the Return of Oz. And then 
like people were telling me about that movie being dark and scary and all that. I was like, well, yeah. Have you ever read the book, The Wizard of Oz? It isn't like the movie. It's basically terrifying. Yeah, the the uh, the Tin Man kills quite a few people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, closing up the birthdays, inventor extraordinaire, uh, born May 16th, 1903, a man by the name of Charles F. Braddock. Ah. Who, yeah. You know what he invented? I do. What did he invent, Jeff? He, well, what's, I want to do this like a trivia question. Okay. He invented the Braddock device. Oh, how clever of you. (laughs) Well, the the Braddock device was a device to measure the size of the human foot. And I know that because, and I'm sure, Bill, you remember, the TV commercials for Fava Shoes. Fava? Fred Berry, who would say, this is a Braddock device. We use it to measure your feet at Fava Shoes. I don't remember that, but I do remember Fava Shoes, barely. Like, I I wouldn't have remembered it until you brought it up, right? Uh, Yeah, uh, anytime you go into a shoe store and they measure your feet, uh, yep, that device is the Braddock device, and the man who invented it, his birthday is the 16th. It's, what's kind of cool about the Brannock device is it's a simple a simple idea, and it's an easy standard. They tried to replace it in the 1930s with an X-ray that oh. you could stick your foot into and see if the shoes fit well. But it was so unshielded, it made, gave people cancer. <laughs> yeah. Foot cancer. Yeah. The bulb for the X-ray machine was, like, right at chest height, <laughs> and it was shining down, but it would, like, it would leak out of the machine all over you. And you could see I your can't... feet move, wiggle in real time. I can't get my foot back in the shoe because it's... <laughs> This bulbous tumor sticking out of the side of my ankle. Yeah. It's the the original origin story for the Incredible Hulk. I think I did a size seven and a half. <laughs> the Incredible Hulk TV series came out in the seventies, late uh, mid to late seventies. Another popular TV show at that time was Happy Days, which brings us to the worst song. Ever. Um, Jeff, <laughs> up, up, up until about an, uh, a couple of hours ago, I was completely unaware of this song, so why don't you do the honors this week? I was actually unaware of this song until researching this week's worst song ever, too. Oh. And it falls into this tiny, tiny category of songs that are f- shameless cash-ins on other media properties that have nothing to do with those media properties, and yet they're still not uh, stewed into oblivion. And this is a 1976 song, The Fawn Song, by a band cobbled together called the Hayettes. It only got as far as 91 in the top uh, 100, <laughs> but that's a lot of points for it to get. It's going to sell a lot of records to get to 91. Now, they're called the Hayettes. Yeah. I guess that's a play on the like the Fonzie going but he didn't say hey. Yeah, he said he said A, not hey. Right. It was like an A. Yeah. Right. Well, this song is yeah. from a record called the Fonzie album. And it's like six songs about Fonzie. Oh no. <laughs> All of them suck. Yeah, before we go any further, let's play the yeah. clip. Oh boy. Oh, 
funny. That guy doesn't even sound like Fonzie at all. <laughs> nope, he doesn't. He does not sound like him at all. Yeah, it sounds like Andrew Dice Clay more than it sounds like Fonzie. And, like, Andrew Dice Clay was basically Fonzie. It's like Fon- <laughs> Fonzie with dick jokes. Yep, right. It's funny, like, nobody from Happy Days appears on this record at all. None of nobody. And I don't know how this guy was able to get it produced, but there it is. There's some funny trivia. Like, one of the voices, background singers, is a woman named Julia Tillman. And she did backing vocals for Carol King in the Tapestry LP. Okay. And she was quoted as saying, This is fine, but I'd rather be singing stupid bullshit. Like, just stick your thumbs in the air and do the fawns. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, and there's a tie into Kiss. Stop it. I guess uh, the two, the Hayettes, that's the women who sang, yep. Julia Tillman and Maxine Willard, sang back up on Peter Chris's solo album. Oh my God. Between the Fawns album and the Peter Chris solo album, they must have, they must have royalty checks like in the tens of dollars. <laughs> Or the tens of cents. Yeah. <laughs> I saved up for three years. I can get a Big Mac now. Right. But, yeah, super funny. And it, there are a few songs that are like this that call attention to some other thing. Bill and I, we were talking about that stupid Mr. Jaws song before we started recording today. Right. Which is similar to this, and it just takes clips of other songs and strings them together. There's, like, always been a thing that is, as if there's a, a buzzword or a catchphrase, it's like the record producers and the hit writers just, like, scramble to get the song out. Probably the most famous of all these uh, catchphrase songs would be Word Up by Cameo. Right. And that's a chicken and the egg, too. You You can make... You can make an argument that they actually they came up with the buzzword before. That's I. That's the side of the argument that I I stand on. Yeah, that's word a, up wasn't a thing until I until Cameo made it a thing. But um, and then they vanished. Oh yeah. So they were like word down. Yeah, they took their red cod piece and ran off. Yeah, and like how much money did I get for this single? All of it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and like, do you? Remember, I guess it was like in the early '90s, whenever like uh, girls started calling their. Their like friends would be like, oh, girlfriend. They would call their friend girlfriend. Instantly, there was a song. I think the girl's name was Pebbles or Peebles, and yeah, she yeah, Nia Peebles. Yeah, uh, yeah, and she had that song, girlfriend. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they she had that song, girlfriend. Yep. And then there was Matthew Sweet. <laughs> yeah, but that's a cool song. <laughs> yeah, that has nothing to do with. Uh, one more piece of uh, one more piece of trivia about this uh, Fonzie Hayette song there. Is uh, it was produced by a guy named Jackie Mills, and he was the same man responsible for the Davy Jones 1971 solo album, which had uh, the song "Girl, Look What You've Done to Me." Yeah, from the, uh, the Brady Bunch. Yep, Brady Bunch episode, and in the Brady Bunch movie that they did it up grunge style, which was amazing. But yeah, Fonzie, Fonzie, he's our man. My favorite line from the, <laughs> my favorite line from the song was. He doesn't sit on it. <laughs> Which, if you've never uh, seen the show, that is such an entendre. That is yeah. not even a double. That's like a quadruple entendre. Yeah. Not, one I, does, I don't even want to explain because it's more fun if I don't. But here is something I will explain. The answer to the trivia question. Oh, boy. Trivia question was, who was the youngest member of the Saturday Night Live cast? 
Man, I haven't watched that show regularly in a long time, so I've missed a lot of cast members. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a YouTube watcher myself. I want to say Eddie Murphy. Was Eddie Murphy? He was pretty young when he was on that That's show. That's an excellent guess. Eddie Murphy, I think he was like 19 or 20 when he started on Saturday Night Live. Yep, the answer is, and it's an obscure answer because there was like one season where Lauren Michaels wasn't involved with Saturday Night Live. It's known as the worst Saturday Night Live season. And Anthony Michael Hall was a member of that cast. And he wasn't even 18. He was 17 and a half whenever the season started. So Anthony Michael Hall is the youngest person to ever be a regular Saturday Night Live cast member. Huh. Well, there you go. Yeah, we, everybody Michael had Hall. a lot of big hopes for that season because Anthony Michael Hall and Robert Downey Jr., but, all right, so anyway, that is going to wrap up this week's episode. We will see you right back here next week, everybody. Have a great week, everyone. And say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, Bye everybody. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook and Instagram at Twibly, or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already, and tell your friends. They probably need a cool podcast to listen to as well. And if you don't like this week's episode, there'll be one next week, and it'll probably be better. <laughs>